This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Coming up, a cyber hack in Vanuatu has knocked the main hospital's systems offline. One thing that's still frustrating us is getting payments for our suppliers because our finance and procurement system depends on the internet. They are guardians of tuna fisheries in the Pacific and they're making a return to the high seas. But safety questions remain. We've had still had a number of fatalities on board is testament to the fact that we haven't done enough. And Kiribati is aiming to build up its islands to counter rising sea levels. But will the ambitious scheme work? It would involve tons of concrete or, or other hot materials. And, uh, well, ironically, making it a fortress would be maybe in the interest of uh, a few powers around but not for the nation itself, I'm sure. But first, Fiji's national elections will be held in 10 days' time, and the social media platform TikTok is fast becoming the battleground. In a bid to win over young voters, former coup leaders, military men and long-time politicians are showing off their dancing and acting skills, and some have even hired TikTok influencers to do so. Jordan Fennell with more. Someone... uh asked me the other day, do you ever lift, bro? Sitaveni Rambuka, Fiji's 74-year-old original coup leader, talked to the camera while wiping sweat off his face after finishing a workout. And I said, yes, I used to, but now I'm more interested in lifting the standard of this country. Since he joined TikTok a week ago, his videos have been watched more than 500,000 times. His most popular video is a skit of him shopping for fabric in a store, where an Indo-Fijian shop assistant approaches him with a question. If me and uh, people like me vote for you now, will we be okay? I give you my word. I will look after the Indo-Fijians of Fiji. In 1987, Mr. Rambuka led an ethno-nationalistic coup and overthrew the then Indo-Fijian-dominated government. That led to an exodus of non-Indigenous Fijians fleeing the country. He was later democratically elected as Prime Minister. Pacific Digital researcher Jope Tarai says this new TikTok skit is an attempt to speak to young Indo-Fijians in the country. It's easy to weaponize that history against him. And so he's responding to that by seeking to assure those that were born uh, within the millennium that we're in now that they are safe and that they are secure. Al-Sheikh Ashad Ali is a 19-year-old Indo-Fijian university student. He's also a first-time voter. And he says he's seen that skit shared all over social media. It's, it is actually creative. You can see videos uh, at the comfort of your house and then you can decide who is the best alternative for you to vote for. The youth vote is a key target for Fijian politicians, with people under the age of 35 making up more than 60% of the population. It's known as the youth bulge, and Jope Tarai says one of the hurdles politicians face is making them care enough to get out and vote. So you not only have to be able to engage with them, you have to speak their language. And on TikTok, that language is dance. The 
Another video shows Fiji's Labour Party leader Mahendra Chaudhry in an office surrounded by a group of dancers. Popular TikTok star Avishkar Kumar says he was hired to teach the eight-year-old the best moves. When we entered inside the office, he was like, oh, I don't know how to how these things work. You need to teach me. I said, okay, okay, sir, just feel comfortable and then we will do whatever we have to do. It, it, was, it was quite difficult for him, but he was really coping up with my team. Mr Chowdhury says the Labour Party really needs the youth vote to be successful at the election. I'd like to take my message to the youth. They have a lot of problems here which need to be attended to, essentially jobs, employment. So uh, we need to reach out to them, connect with them, be relevant. Now, a week after Mr Rambuka and Mr Chowdhury joined the platform, the current caretaker Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, has entered the fray, but with a slightly different approach. I'm not here to dance. Leadership is serious business. It matters to young people who want better jobs in high-tech industries. Jope Trai says for a political message to be successful on TikTok, it has to be tailored to the site. The platform is about entertainment. So it's not necessarily a Twitter-like platform where there's a lot of serious policy, political ideology discussions. He says in Fijian politics, polarizing views are a big challenge and that TikTok as an entertainment space provides a unique opportunity for candidates to neutralize that feeling and connect with voters. You create an avenue of engagement that isn't conceited, but creates some conciliation in, if you don't agree with me, at least you can give me the space to listen to me for a few seconds. If you're not going to vote for me, at least you can sort of enjoy this moment with me. With just two weeks left until people head to the polls, Al-Sheikh Ashad Ali says Fiji's youth will be waiting to see which TikTok videos pop up next. It is good that uh, people are getting informed and well aware of uh, who are the choices that they can choose from. That was Al-Sheikh Ashad Ali speaking there, and the reporter was Jordan Fennell. And ABC has reached out to Mr. Rambuka and Mr. Bainimarama for comment, but has not received a response. A ransomware attack on Vanuatu's government has crippled its public services for nearly a month, though the government says its network is slowly coming back online. Chief Information Officer Gerard Metzen says 70% of the government network has now been restored, including crucial emergency lines for ambulances, police and fire services. It's good news because, as Dubrovka Volodair reports, government emails, websites and internal servers were paralysed after the attack, bringing some key sectors to a halt. At Vanuatu's main hospital, Port Vila Central, they're feeling the impact of the cyber attack. Dr. Vincent Atua is medical superintendent. Well, just going back to what, how we used to do things in the olden days, it does slow things down a lot, as in communicating between wards. So when the hack started, the one that really affected us was the telephones, so calling between wards, uh, transferring patients uh, back and forth, so communication within the ward. But once that was sorted out, things have slowly come back to normal. While it's not impacting on patient care, he says it's still affecting the hospital and its staff. One thing that's still frustrating us is getting payments for our suppliers because our finance and procurement system depends on the the internet. And so that's been a major, major issue. And that means using pen and paper or walking to other departments to get things done. For example, if we um, run out of soap or laundry, 
in order to get payment for it, it has to go through some financial process that then allows us to raise uh, purchase orders. That's been crippled or paralyzed. And so we have to do things manually. And it means traveling from here down to finance and back or getting urgently required drugs, uh, raising payments for that by going through the finance system is awfully slow. And many times we have had delays. There have been reports that salaries of some government employees have been affected. But Dr. Atua says hospital staff are still getting paid. Finance worked out a way to keep the salaries running. But the base salary, so sometimes people are entitled for things like overtime. Those allowances have been put on hold. The cyber attack has also caused delays in the shipping of goods. But one of its main effects has been the disruption throughout the civil service itself. So all government systems are still down. Uh, They've been down since uh, we came into government, basically. Uh, We came into government and uh, less than 24 hours later, this cyber attack took the whole government system down and it's still down now. So, yes, it's affecting our work. Ralph Friginvanu is Vanuatu's new climate change minister. We've put in place the the necessary decisions and uh, so on to get it fixed and the people are working on it. But um, it's a serious breach of our national security. Australian experts are helping Vanuatu to rebuild its IT network with the aim to future to prove it. We're very concerned about the fact that it happened and we're very concerned about how we fix it given what's happening in the world today, not only in terms of technology and cyber uh, matters, but also in terms of geopolitics. So it's very concerning to us how we uh, you know, reboot in a way that is uh, going to be good for our future long-term security. Australia's Pacific Minister, Pat Conroy, who was in Vanuatu last week, says cyber attacks were a problem for many countries in the region. The really important thing is, in this age, governments and organisations and businesses are under constant scrutiny from malicious actors. And it's very important that the Pacific family works together to make sure that all our systems work properly. And when a system does go down, that our members of the Pacific family are there to help It's still unclear who's behind the attack. Dr. Matt Keane from the think tank, the Lowy Institute, says there could be a couple of reasons why Vanuatu was targeted. One is financial, and that was, you recall, the PNG cyber attack on their financial management system uh, last year. And that was clearly financial motivation, a motivation for ransom and information that could be leveraged for financial advantage. That's a possibility here, but it has disabled the government system, so the other possibility is some sort of political motivation. It's unclear when Vanuatu's service will be up and running again, but there is hope they will be fixed in the coming weeks. Dubrovka Volodar with that report. They can face threats, intimidation and sometimes death. And now fisheries observers across the Pacific are due to return to work after a two-year hiatus because of the pandemic. It means fishing vessels operating in the region will face more intense scrutiny. But being an observer has proved to be dangerous work in the past, with a number of suspicious disappearances reported over the last decade. So Marion Farr takes a look at what's being done to make the observers' jobs safer. For more than two years, fisheries observers around the Pacific have spent most of their time on dry land. Manu Tupo-Rosen is Director General of the Pacific Islands Forum Fisheries Agency, the peak regional body that helps Pacific countries manage their fishing resources. During this COVID period, 
there's been a significant impact on the suspension of basically their livelihood. But as of next year, hundreds of observers will finally return to work. It's taken quite some time and I think also necessary time so that we're all confident as a collective that our observers can be safely redeployed. At a meeting in Vietnam this week, members have agreed to redeploy fisheries observers from January 1. Having them back on vessels, of course, is re-engaging our observers back to that important task and a source of livelihood for them. Also, a really critical source of information for both science and for compliance. For many, it will be a relief to return to work. But COVID-19 is not the only danger that fisheries observers face. Baba Cook is the Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program Manager for the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Working at sea is inherently dangerous. There's all sorts of things that anyone working on a fishing vessel can encounter, not the least of which is rough seas and dangerous conditions, wet decks. A small injury can become septic very quickly and you can die ultimately from a a small injury. A WWF report found that over the past 11 years, at least nine observers have died or disappeared in unnecessary or worse, in suspicious circumstances. The bigger concern that we have in recent years is the number of observers that have been subject to threats, intimidation and assault while serving on board vessels. Observers are at best a nuisance and at worst a threat to the crews on board and to the owners because they collect information that can ultimately impact the bottom line of that vessel. So what is being done to protect fisheries observers when they return to work? Manu Tupo-Rosen says the Forum Fisheries Agency undertook a study into the safety and livelihoods of observers. They looked at ways that observers could do their work on land using digital tools. It's a huge opportunity for electronic monitoring in terms of having observers and their wide experience on vessels as eyes and ears to undertake analyses of electronic monitoring data, basically video footage, and they are just so brilliant at that. The FFA is also running safety refresher courses for workers and developing a new observer compensation scheme. If there's an observer that's been hurt or injured, if there's an observer that's unfortunately passed, the the types of compensation that could be accorded to the observer or to the family. And so it's set up like an insurance scheme, and it's work that's still being developed by our membership, but certainly they're They're well behind this. FFA members have also adopted a suite of recommendations made by the WWF. Here's Bubba Cook. The fact that we've had still had a number of fatalities on board fishing vessels of observers have occurred since the observer safety and security measure went into effect is testament to the fact that we haven't done enough. Uh, There's still more that needs to be done. And, you know, we've said uh, repeatedly that you know, no vessel should ever bring home bodies, but should bring home people. And if, you know, observers fall ill or if crew fall ill on board those vessels, it is the responsibility of the flag state to ensure that they come home healthy and not in a body bag. Bubba Cook from the Worldwide Fund for Nature, ending Marion Farr's report. The question of where waste ends up after we flush the toilet can have a massive impact on the health of communities. And in Fiji, the absence of well-developed sewage systems in informal settlements is leading to outbreaks of diarrhoea, skin infections and other diseases. But now, a research team from Monash University in Melbourne have come up with a surprising solution to the water treatment problem, one that involves grass. 
Salinga Matiki lives in a small community on the outskirts of Fiji's capital Suva called Tamavua Yiwai. It's an informal settlement made up of about 30 houses. Some of them have houses, some are concrete, some are wooden houses. The community is hooked up to the city's water supply, which means they can drink clean water from the taps. But though the water coming into Tamavua Iwai is clean, the water flowing out isn't. The water they take from water authority is clean, but the ones that uh, know the rivers that teach sometimes it's uh, not clean, uh, very dead. That's because the community doesn't have a good sewerage system. When families use the toilet, that waste doesn't always move out of the village and can instead stagnate, accumulating disease and bacteria. Children can play in these contaminated puddles, and if the wastewater mixes with the rivers, it can easily travel to people who swim in it, bringing sickness to many households. Fecal contamination comes from, of course, poor or non-existing sanitation. Tony Wong is a professor of sustainable development at Monash University. And of course, uh, in, in these sediments, they're exposed to all of it. Poor sanitation, flooding, and also poor drainage in the sense that when they do flood, the water just can't get away. Uh, and so they, they live in this condition, almost like a cesspool. He's part of a project to revolutionise wastewater management in Saolinga's village and others around Fiji. Essentially, we're using nature to uh, cleanse uh, the sewage to a point whereby it is uh, safe for it to be discharged into, uh, into the estuary or into the waterways and, and therefore uh, safe for communities to be interacting in those waterways. The project's called RISE, Revitalizing Informal Settlements and Their Environments, and uses constructed wetlands to clean human waste. It might sound like a technique from the future, but Professor Wong says the science behind it is decades old. In the first world, we use it extensively to look at how constructed wetlands are included into our cityscapes uh, and, and how that is used to cleanse uh, in many of the first world uh, stormwater. The system works by putting in place pipes stretching from houses like Saolinga's to a big wetland of flowing water built near the community. A layer of gravel sits on top of the water. That helps stop any foul smells getting out, and it also helps filter the waste. But the real work comes from the grasses in the wetlands. Their roots not only suck up the water, but also the bacteria in them act like a natural sanitizer, cleaning up the pathogens in our waste that can spread sickness. If the wetland is built properly and the water flows at the right speed, within three to seven days the water can improve. For Lee Wise, leader of Fiji's RISE program, the technology is revolutionary. It's quite amazing. What we used to do is just weed them out of the garden, spread them as weeds, but uh, yes, they do, have, they do have purpose in terms of uh, you know, managing waste, recycling things, getting water back into to usable, usable state. And he believes the Wetlands Sewerage Project can help save lives. The biggest killer for, for babies uh, from one to five year old is diarrhea. And uh, the biggest cause of diarrhea uh, is exposure to contamination. Once the pipes are connected, Tamavua Yiwai will become the first demo community to try out the new system. Five other informal settlements will also be given constructed wetlands, while another six in the project will be left alone. That will allow researchers like Dr Wong in Australia to collect good data on the effectiveness of the RISE program. So we'll get to compare the six that received the intervention with the six that have not, 
uh, over a two-year period. And that concludes our randomized control trial. And we will then, uh, of course, introduce the intervention to the, to the six control settlements as well. For community leader Saulinga Mataki, the program will take some time to get used to. That's one of the new things. We have to collect all the wastewater from uh, families within that uh, project site. They do the natural recycling. But he's excited to see how it might help his neighbourhood. We want to see that uh, project is complete. They make it successful. That was community leader Saulinga Matiki from Tamuvua Iwai. In the face of the ongoing threat posed by rising sea levels, the government of Kiribati is considering desperate measures to save the country. It may sound like something out of a science fiction novel, but the president, Tanes Mamo, is calling on the international community to help fund the cost of raising the islands of Kiribati by up to five metres. As Mackenzie Smith reports, it would be a bold and very expensive venture, but could it actually work? Rising tides have led to ambitious plans in Kiribati, among them a series of artificial floating islands and mass migration to Australia or Fiji. But now the government is turning its focus to staying, provided it can raise the atolls some three to five metres. Former President Anote Tong, who has backed the idea for years, says it may be the country's only hope of keeping its sovereignty. In the light of what is coming with the rejected rise in sea level and the greater impacts of uh, climate change, we would have to undertake very radical adaptation measures. Research on the effectiveness of building up islands is limited, but Francois Flockard, principal engineer for coastal engineering at the UNSW's Water Research Laboratory, thinks the government's plan holds water. He's worked in coastal resilience in the Cook Islands and the Marshall Islands. Based on those experiences, he says how Kiribati sources its materials, usually a mixture of sand with an outer layer made of rock, concrete or metal, will make all the difference. For example, taking sand from the atolls themselves could destabilise the area and heighten the risks of flooding. If you're taking the sand off the beach to build your protection, you you are creating a situation where you potentially making things worse in the long term. In Kiribati, work has already started on coastal resilience. President Tanes Mamau told The Guardian rocks from Fiji have been imported to strengthen seawalks. Mr Flockhart says with the impacts of global warming becoming more apparent, there's been an uptick in regional interest in similar developments in the Pacific. But whether they work is another matter. Mr Flockhart says frequent cyclones could prove a serious challenge to any build-ups of land and erosion by waves and storms aren't the only threat being brought in with each high tide. Sea level rise also will have other impacts which you may be familiar with such as uh, the increased salinity of the groundwater and the freshwater resource. So, you know, raising the land is addressing a certain problem associated with sea level rise, but sea level rise will also have uh, a compounding effect, for example, on your on your freshwater supply. Others are less optimistic. Bart Van Buren is founder of urban planning firm Water Architect. He says raising islands would have a devastating impact on Kiribati, which might make the country unrecognisable to its people. We're definitely talking about to make it into a fortress. It would involve tons of concrete or, or other hard materials, And, uh, well, ironically, making it a fortress would be maybe in the interest of uh, a few powers around. 
but not for the nation itself, I'm sure. He's concerned dredging could also create an ecological disaster if it isn't handled carefully. I reckon this would also destroy all the corals around it, including the fisher, fish habitats where, well, that's basically the economy there, right? Mr Van Buren was an early proponent of floating cities, an idea to build artificial structures that could move around at sea and rehome Pacific communities. He still thinks it's a better option than building up existing atolls, but he says there are nature-based solutions that are effective too, like mangroves and oyster wall. But Anote Tong says time is running out and building up the islands is the only way. Quite frankly, we don't have any, many more options. We have to destroy things in order to simply stay above the rising seas. And I'm afraid that, uh, you know, we, in this instance, I think it's we've gone way out of control and we are going through an unprecedented uh, set of circumstances. Mr Tong says even if they build up the islands, some people in Kiribati may not want to stay. But he says they owe it to future generations to provide the option for those that do. Mackenzie Smith with that report. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Thanks for listening and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific.